data automation. It may not be what makes the world go round, but it's pretty close when it comes to today's data workloads. Sean and I talk through the in-game benefits of a strong data automation implementation, along with the reality of what it takes to get there in this episode of Data Aware, a podcast about all things data engineering. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Data Aware podcast. Today, Sean and I are back again. Hello, Sean. Hey, Leslie. How's it going today? It's going great. How are you? I'm doing well. You know why I'm doing well? Mm, Say more. Say more, because we are talking about one of our favorite topics, data automation. (laughs) And we like data automation a lot, and we should like it a lot. We are actually hosting the first annual, or our inaugural, as we are calling it, Data Automation Summit here coming up in April. So I'll give you more details on the outro of this on how you can sign up for that. But we love data automation so much. We're hosting an entire two-day summit about it. So this is clearly something we enjoy talking about and really just kind of love spreading the word around. So super excited, super cool. What you think? I'm really excited. We already have a great lineup of speakers coming together. It can be yeah. some pretty incredible tracks. It's going to be a, f- a phenomenal couple of days. Yeah, super cool. Super exciting. Really fun. We are seeing some really, really, really fun things happen around data automation. And if you've heard us talk in any of our previous podcasts, you will have heard data automation and the concept of it be sprinkled throughout all of those because we really think it is such an integral part of the full life cycle of data engineering, but we're going to talk specifically about it today. So I'm going to start with the 101 question, which is the, if you are like me when I first started at Ascend and or when I first started in the data space and you know nothing about anything having to do with data, like what is data automation? Because it sounds really simple. Is the is it as simple as it really sounds? Conceptually, yes. In practice, no. I, I think that's the the interesting and fun part about data automation is historically, we used to oftentimes use the notions of data automation and data orchestration mm-hmm. synonymously. And I think the, you know, the really important part about data automation and when we think about the differences between these two is data automation is a broader concept. Mm-hmm. It includes and encapsulates things like data orchestration, but it involves the broader pieces of extract, transform, and uh, load delivery of that data to other systems. Right. It incorporates and involves uh, the registering of metadata to track how data is being used throughout the organization. It includes the, the broader portions of uh, what would classically be the data engineering and analytics engineering principles for uh, data pipelines and, and data platforms. That makes sense. And there's also probably, to be fair to everybody in the data space, there's probably pretty broad swaths of data automation as well. There's probably automation that's specific to analytics. There's probably automation that's more specific to maybe source or ingestion. There's probably analytic or automation, excuse me, that's more specific to the actual like data flow, data pipeline. There's probably automation that's more specific to 
the application side of things. Like there's probably different types of automation. So maybe is there, when we talk data automation, I mean, is there a difference between all of those? What types of automation are, when we talk automation, are we talking about maybe kind of give a little bit of context around that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think in many ways, we oftentimes think of, of automation and, and even orchestration uh, as they kind of pair together, uh, you know, as I mentioned, as, as the same, but there's also a, a huge difference between, you know, cruise control and autopilot. Uh, and self-driving yeah. cars, right? So for example, if we think about automation, even when we're extracting data from different sources, you know, one of the frameworks that, that I would give us to really think through is the difference between a, a classic scheduling-based model, or mm -hmm. even as we talked about in our last podcast, timers and triggers from an orchestration model, mm -hmm. and something that is actually more adaptive and, and more responsive uh, automatically. Mm -hmm. Not to use the word in its definition. Uh, <laughs> but for example, as we go through more advanced layers of automation, uh, you usually find uh, systems that build more sophistication off of the things that they're doing. They're right. collecting statistics around the data uh, that they're moving around. They're profiling the data. They're building historical models as to how often that data tends to change and in what ways so that they can optimize how things move through and I think that's a really important first piece uh, when we think about extract. It, it's the difference between just reloading all of the data every day versus, hey, automatically checking and watching for how often new data changes, pulling that in, unifying it with the, the previous data sets. And then even actually, most importantly, too, uh, registering that, uh, that data with the pieces that have accessed it before, mm -hmm. uh, the systems that have accessed it before so that they know how. Uh, to continue to move that new data coming through. Well, that makes sense. So let's break it down even further. So we've talked a little bit about automation from the orchestration piece of it, which makes a lot of sense. And again, a small plug for the other podcast, if you haven't listened to it, we talked a whole lot more about it in our previous episode of the season um, that talks about data orchestration. But I mean, data engineering, you can't talk about data engineering without talking about ETL. So when you're talking about ETL, extract, transformation, load, or ELT, or ETLT, or reverse ETL, or any other way that you want to put those letters in, in together, however we want to order those letters or put around those letters, talk to me about automation in each one of of those or what kind of the different steps per se or how it impacts or just what folks should know, I guess, or, you know, and it, look, I may not be able to keep up with that conversation, but feel free to dive into like the 201, 301, 401 levels or like graduate studies level if you want to, because I can just sit over here and be quiet while you're doing that. Uh, yeah, happy to. So you know, when we think about in, in that sort of classic ETL model, oftentimes when we're, when we're doing extract and transform and load, we're also orchestrating pipelines. And usually we're also registering that data somewhere, right? With some sort of a catalog or other external system. And on top of all of that, we're usually, or at least hopefully increasingly trying to adhere to some sort of uh, data ops principles as well, defined 
some best practices there around how we move faster and more nimbly with data. So, uh, and as we're building these systems and as we're running these ETL uh, pipelines or ELT, if you were at this point, uh, the lines are blurring very quickly. <laughs> and, and as you said earlier, it's much more of a ETLT, LT, LT, LT uh, these days. Uh, you know, automation really weaves through all of these. And I think that the connecting thread is metadata oftentimes. So, you know, as I mentioned, when extracting data, it is more advanced models that actually maintain full history of everything that's been extracted before. Understand the profile of the data that's been extracted before. Understand the uh, load parameters from the system that it's allowed to access. For example, can you read data with only one thread because it's a really small database and you don't want to overwhelm it? Or can you parallelize it and have a thousand different workers or pods or nodes all pulling data from the same uh, place because it's an object store? Mm -hmm. And so that automation factor is really uh, tied in the extract notion to the actual nature of the system and understanding how it works. Mm -hmm. What then ends up happening is as we extract data, as we build profiles on that data to automate and fuel the other parts, as I mentioned, that metadata starts to feed through and weave through all these elements here. When we get into transformation, automated systems go beyond that notion of orchestration. Mm -hmm. They understand the historical resources required. They understand uh, the lineage of individual components and even down to a columnar level where uh, when new data arrives, and you know, in our last podcast, we talked about uh, how you orchestrate data as it flows through a, a DAG, a directed mm -hmm. graph. Well, understanding the nature of data as it moves through, not only is tracing through the, the lineage of the operations, but understands uh, dependencies down to a partition level. So that if I have new fragments of data that become available, automation can actually weave that data through um, the transfer level and run more optimized uh, jobs that don't have to reprocess as much data that are faster and cheaper and more efficient and less prone to error. Uh, and then, you know, honestly, when we get to the, the load side, this is actually one where there hasn't been as much work until recently with automation. Uh, but when we're transforming data, we have to put it somewhere. Uh, and when we need automation, we need things that can do uh, operations on that resulting data. They can answer questions like, what if there's already data in there? Is the data correct? Is it even of the right schema? What right. do I do when the schemas don't match? Do I update it? Do I delete it? Do I raise an error? Because I need a human to come help me. Right. Uh, and I think that that's the, you know, as, as we trace this, this metadata line through uh, uh, and follow it through with automation, that really becomes a, how we start to see this incredible benefit for going even beyond just orchestration into full-fledged automation mm -hmm. uh, of ETLT, LTLT pipelines uh, is this ability to uh, have a, a system that is far more data aware that, that flows everything through. Sorry, I didn't even intend on doing that, but that actually worked out quite nice. That's to say, which y'all can't see is I gave him a look when he did that. Um, I mean, I don't hate it, but yeah, no, it, it makes a lot of sense. I feel like you talked about this in there. And so I'm going to jump around a little bit from where I kind of had my questions going, because I, I do feel like you started to go in this direction. And so I want to pull that thread yeah. a little bit of, 
say I am a data engineer or say I am a data team lead or whatever. And everybody out there can laugh. It's all good. It's okay. I'm laughing with you at the thought of that. And I'm looking at this and I'm going, yes, automation, God help me. We've got way more work than we can get done. We have to figure out some way to automate this so that I can do, like, do the things I need to do. And my team can actually like handle more stuff because we got more stuff than we can do. What is the, like, what is the handbook? What is the guide? What is the steps? What are, what are rather to be correct in English, what are the steps that you need to go down to sort of create that strategy. Like I said, you, I think with some of what you were talking about just a second ago, you started to, to walk that path, but are there some sort of, obviously it's different for every company, depending on what they have. I, I don't think that there's a, um, a one path fits all, but are there some general guidelines, I guess, that people can think about that we've seen based on the work that A, you've done in the past in your career, and then B, also the work that we see with our customers? Yeah, definitely. You know, when I think about conceptually first, and then you're, you're probably going to pull me into more pragmatic advice. Uh, but you know, when we first start conceptually, a lot of automation follows you know very similar patterns to what we've even seen some of the tiers of artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. right? Where first you start to go with heuristic-based models, then you move towards more statistical-based models, and eventually you can go into far more advanced models like true machine learning with you know neural nets and, and so on. And we see this sort of progression. And, and the reason why I, I spend the time on this is as, as you try and build more advanced systems, it requires more metadata and it requires actually far fewer hard-coded rules and far more uh, flexible and dynamic adaptations that you allow the, the system to operate uh, on, on behalf of you as the developer. Right. And the reason why I mentioned this is, is one, oftentimes when engineers are creating their, their data pipelines, their ETL or ELT, when they're trying to automate their data pipelines, they oftentimes start with really hard and fast rules designed mm-hmm. to the specific use case. And part of that challenge then becomes when the environment changes when when some new parameter changes a huge lump of data comes in or you know it's a leap year and you didn't sort of factor that in all these assumptions that you bake into your code all of a sudden then makes the system brittle uh, right. and those assumptions in that conditional logic you put in may no longer hold and, and so as we move more and more advanced with automation, it turns into much more of a moving up stack. We talked right. before around that, that shift more towards declarative models as opposed mm-hmm. to imperative. And then the second piece is uh, all of that requires a ton more metadata. Uh, and you know, one of our favorite sayings here is uh, metadata is the new big data. And I really do believe that where yeah. to invest in and to achieve high levels of automation, we really do need to collect far more metadata, not for us, but for the systems to automate those data pipelines. And that becomes a really important theme for most teams uh, to give them, give everybody something pretty tactical and tangible uh, is 
you should be collecting incredible amounts of metadata about your data, profiles of the data, how it's being accessed by what jobs with what resources, where it's going to, uh, why it is going there and where it goes from there. And the reason why I think that becomes so important is to move out of just sheer baseline orchestration and into far more advanced levels of automation. You can't do that without having tremendous volumes of metadata with which your, your automated systems can make base their decisions. Are there unintended consequences? I hear sheer volumes of metadata and I think, oh God, now you have to like track that and store that and know where it came from and know where it went and understand that metadata. Are the, is there, but that may not be a problem. Are there unintended consequences that come with having an advanced automation strategy as part of your data engineering strategy? Well, I would say definitely one consequence is you can't rely on your, your production pipelines to wake you up at three in the morning anymore. You're going to have to set an alarm clock for that. Very true. I mean, there could be absolutely, <laughs> there's phenomenal, we're going to go, I mean, like, I think everybody knows the benefits. We're absolutely going to talk about benefits too. But also, I mean, I think there may be, there may be some unintended consequences, maybe a strong word, but unintended just things you need to think about. So, so one, it's hard. Right, it, to, to build you know highly automated systems is harder to get up and over that that hump uh, than it is to, to build just sort of manually orchestrated systems. Yeah. Uh, you you can skip a lot of steps in those early days by not trying to go full fledged automation uh, and just kind of you know throwing some some elbow grease at it and, and making it work. I think that, that that's okay. It definitely takes time to build a system that is that automated. I think we're going to be entering you know, an era over the next couple of years where there's going to be introduction of a lot more automated systems, mm -hmm. not just orchestration, but going beyond that to full-fledged automation, mm -hmm. uh, as we're seeing in a lot of other uh, software domains as well. So I think that's certainly something that we can we can count on and rely on. Is this isn't a problem that most people are going to have to solve. Yeah. but instead or something that they can just build on top of and take advantage of. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that's certainly one. You know, as far as um, concern around the sheer volume of metadata, uh, the good news is, and, and this is where we get to fall back on our strengths in the big data world, is metadata is still an order or two magnitude less than the order of actual data that we work with. Yeah. And that actually becomes some of the fun aspects of uh, what we get to start to do is metadata itself is no longer a, you know, put it in your Postgres database and run queries and, and keep tabs that way. But it is a get your metadata in the same data lake or data warehouse systems that you use for all the rest of your big data processing. And you can do the same magical things on your metadata uh, that you're doing on your actual data itself. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I guess I'm just, it sounds like all utopia and roses and candy. Oh my. And so what are the, before somebody just dives head first, like what are the, like before they hit the first roadblock and go, wait, I didn't know this was hard. Like, what are the things to think about? I, I do think that the sobering one is it, it's hard. 
worked to build right. this. I mean, I mean, just to be like ultra transparent, you know, we've been at this for many years at Ascent as a team and building a high levels of automation definitely takes a lot of, of effort to do. You know, we spend time talking about domain specific control planes and yeah. uh, high levels of, of automation where you have to actually be context aware or in our specific context, data aware. And at that time, um, <laughs> the, the thing is, it takes a tremendous amount of uh, engineering resources to build a system that is that sophisticated. Uh, and many companies may not have the stomach for it, or they may start it and they may not understand the deep levels of complexity uh, required and, and the sheer level of, of engineering effort it takes to get to the other side of that vision. I think about the the normal roadblocks that, to be fair, any team within an organization faces when they start any sort of new project, which is I have my my goals or my OKRs or my whatever your company uses, I need to hit for this quarter or the six months or this year. And it's awesome that I have this project that I want to start that I think that in six months or a year is going to make a tremendous amount of difference. But if it means that I can't hit my short-term stuff, it falls to the wayside. If it means that I am spending too much time trying to do this, if it means I'm spending too much time trying to create this automation platform, and therefore I cannot do the other 20 things that are on my plate to make the business run, it falls to the wayside. Mm -hmm. um, and so they probably are having to choose between what makes things better a year from now and what just gets the job done. Um, yeah. And that's tough. Totally. Well, and, and this is a, you know, a bit of a tangent, but I think it's a really important one, which is we see uh, a ton of teams. And, and I mean, to be honest, this isn't even a data thing. This is just more of an engineering thing where you know, more often than not, teams are being pretty pegged with workloads already. These days, you know, we're all working in, in you know, I think, some pretty exciting transform, uh, transformative and high growth areas if, if you're in data and software today. And what we see is, you know, oftentimes we, we undergo these pretty you know, massive and exciting projects, but the engine still has to keep running. The wheels still have to keep turning. And, you know, when we put that then against the backdrop of data teams, you know, as we found for the last two years in a row, data teams are at or over capacity. 96, it was 96 and 97% of yeah. our last two years of surveys. Soon to be for the third, our third one's going in the field here soon. I'm hoping at least the trend continues and maybe it'll only only be 95% this year. Yeah. Okay. But the you know, when, when you put that against the backdrop of how overloaded teams already are, you know, you take any project. And, you know, optimistically, it may be a six or 12 month project, you put it on a loaded team, you double that time frame. By the time that team even has an alpha version of this product, you're already a couple of years further along in the industry, the technology landscape has completely changed. Yeah. And, and you're just kind of in this stuck spot, right? And, and so I do believe that, you know, this is that, that challenge is it's a, a catch 22 where, mm -hmm. If teams had higher levels of automation, they would have a lot more free time to invest in the next gens. But they don't because they don't have automation. As a result, there's you know somewhat trapped uh, in, in these cycles. And, and so yeah. I think the 
And when we see the sheer growth of uh, data engineering, uh, well, demand for data engineering teams and, and, and analytics engineering teams, we see that there's so much more demand. And, and that's where you know, we really do see that demand for talent outpacing supply. We're just not creating enough data engineers and analytics engineers fast enough as yeah. an industry. The only way you solve that ultimately is you, you need more leverage for the really talented folks we have there out in the, in the industry. And, and you, you get leverage through automation. Yeah. And to be fair with that, I will say, speaking as, again, coming from totally different, but it is an example that is similar, but different in that I have personally spent a lot of free time, weekend nights over the last two weeks, just going into our marketing automation system and putting a bunch of frameworks in place that I have not had over the last year and a half. Now that we are, you know, a year and a half of learnings, this is how we, going into the next year saying, this is how we want to scale our marketing team. This is how we want to scale how we're doing things. So knowing that, let me put these frameworks in place so that I have a better understanding of some of the metrics we want to do so that I have a better understanding of this, this, and this. And so let me put these frameworks in place and let me get these reports out and let me get this, this, and this done. And like, I was actually showing one of my team members earlier today, some of the reports that I just have now automatically updating and some of like the views that I have automatically updating. And it is, it is such a relief and it is such a weight off my shoulders when you just, and it is one of those things where I am glad to have spent free time because I don't have time during the day because we're busy. Um, lovely thing for our company is that we're very busy. I don't have time during the day to do it. So I've spent free time doing it because it just, we have an automation system to do it. I just honestly haven't had the time to set it up. So now I'm spending the time to set it up and it is so wonderful because a, it's going to save me time moving forward. B it's going to lead to better performance. C it's going to help us scale like D it is just it means it's going to be a better use of all of our time and all of our abilities and all of our things. Like there's so it's better data. It's all of these things because I have filters in place and I have workflows that automate. Okay. So this person came in this way. So they get routed this way and they do this, that, and the other. And it's amazing. And speaking as just like, again, head of marketing, who's setting up her marketing automation system, probably the way it should have been set up six months ago, but finally having the time to do it. Cause we have a little bit more, you know, sightline into how we want to do a few of these things. It's amazing. So I can only imagine somebody who is spending infinite about infinite more time in their day dealing with data than I necessarily deal with data. The ability to automate things like that. I can only, how much better I feel, I can only imagine how much better they would feel if they had that kind of automation set up. Totally. Well, I think you touch on something too, which is, I mean, maybe this is just the, the, the inner geek in all of us. I definitely get that that delight where like, when something you see running and it's just perfectly automated, and you're like, oh, that used to take me so many clicks, right? and now it just works. And I, I think the, you know, something you said too kind of reminded me is the oftentimes when we, we undertake these automation efforts, right? Usually we see these these automation efforts are like, oh, this thing's creating so much pain. We're going to 
start from scratch or we're going to throw baby out with bath water and rebuild this whole thing. And it, it's funny because the, you know, as, as we, we talk through these, it, and as I, I touched on a little bit earlier, ain't nobody got time for that. Mm-hmm. We're busy. We got, we got the, the wheels are still turning, the engine's still running. You know, it's that old saying of how do you, how do you change the tire while you're still flying down the race? Yep. Right. Uh, and you know, it, it's the, you know, it, it, and as I've seen us even, uh, uh, upgrade and, and invest a lot in our, our marketing automation and so on is these things can be done in smaller and incremental steps, mm-hmm. right? You know, it, the, we see a, a bunch of teams who do it internally. We see a bunch of our customers do this, which is, Hey, we're just going to incrementally be migrating things over we're not going to re re-platform everything all at once you know i was uh slacking with uh one of the, the heads of data from one of our customers the other day and he had this really great um uh what made me very happy was hey we love ascend we still have systems that are running on the older stuff mm-hmm. and we just have a policy which is don't touch it but once it breaks we just yeah. moved over to ascend and then it's now fully automated there you go and you know, I think that that's a, 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 a really good learning that everybody should adhere to. Well, ideally be, you know, use Ascend. But even if you're not using Ascend, the other, the broader takeaway yeah. uh, is also the, you know, find ways of doing this incremental. For sure. Don't try and, and conquer Everest uh, all at once. Find the thing that is creating the most pain today. Something that is just like eating away at most of your time and find a way to automate that piece. Then find a way to automate the next one and systematically move your way through. Because you're never going to know. And this is what I found. I laugh also. I created, forgive me. I'll talk about another thing that I created. I created this wonderful wine spreadsheet because I like wine. I collect I collect <laughs> wine and that makes it sound like I'm a lot more of a wine connoisseur than I am. I'm not, but I just, I like wine. I, I have a lot of wine in my house. I do think those, those are two wine uh, refrigerators I can see in the background. I do you have a big wine refrigerator here? I have one here. I have a bunch of stuff in closets. I have a lot of wine. <laughs> and my friends laugh at me, but I have this big wine. I, I have a, an app on my phone. I found it was too difficult for me to use just because it's whatever, but I have a big wine spreadsheet and I created it a couple weeks ago when I was going through and taking inventory. Yes, I had to take inventory. And I, over the last couple of weeks, as I've been using it, as I've been adding and drinking wine, I realized that it was too, to no, that's not automated. Yes, for sure. But I've realized that it is, and the same thing happened with the marketing automation system. We just aren't quite as far into the process That's why the wine thing came up. But I've realized that, oh, the way I first iterated on it and created it doesn't work for me. And so it has gone through like four iterations. I've changed things like three or four times fairly significantly to make it easier to use for how I actually am using it in day-to-day life. And I think you know, one of the other things that I was talking to a team member about with these changes to the marketing automation system that we're making and some of the reporting that we're doing is it's going to change. As we move forward with this, this is probably not the end result. This is not the final result of what this will look like. We will learn. This will be what it is. And then we will learn how we're using this and how we need it to adjust for our fit. And so to your point, don't rip and replace. Don't try and conquer Everest on the first batch. Do it in small increments because I guarantee if you conquer Everest on the first batch, you're going to hate it because you didn't, you need to use it before you really know how it's going to work for you. 
And if you try and conquer Everest on the first batch, it's probably not going to work for you So do it, increment with it, learn how you use it, learn what works for you and take that learning into the next one. That that totally reminds me of, um, you know, one of the, one of the sayings we heard from uh, another customer a while back, uh, which is you want to make change cheap. Yeah. And the idea behind this is embrace the fact that we are in a very fast moving industry and embrace the fact that we don't all know where the technology landscape is going to go. We know it's going to be exciting. We know it's going to move very quickly, but we also know it's going to change a lot. Uh, and you know, I think the, unfortunately, and probably I think for valid reasons, but also very valid reasons as to why we should now break away from this pattern is the data ecosystem from an engineering perspective, how we build, I would argue in many ways is a solid decade behind the rest of engineering and, and software engineering principles. Mm-hmm. You know, today we still build very much like older traditional waterfall-based development models. Mm-hmm. We take on these massive architectural projects. You know, we take quarters until anything sees the light of day and we just really hope we got it right. Mm-hmm. But it's a moving target, right? And, and so it's really hard to know. And the longer a project takes, the more that target can move and the higher your risk is because the higher variability as to where you're going to end up. And what we see a lot is change is expensive because these are long projects and you're hoping you get your direction correct and you hope you actually are intercepting that curve properly. And I think there is a really important thing for us in this automated ecosystem to embrace, which is, we need to be able to move faster. Uh, we need to move more towards proper agile style development, whether it's Scrum or even Kanban style of, of development for mm-hmm. data pipelines. And, and you know, maybe this is a, a, a good, we should talk about this at some point, maybe in the next couple, the, the notion of data ops versus DevOps and the notion yeah. of how do we move faster? Because in many ways, you know, DevOps was born because we wanted to enable more software engineers to write more software faster, mm-hmm. yet safely. If we look at most of the data ops principles today, they're about how do we enable more data people, data engineers, analysts, engineers, data scientists, et cetera, to work more with data faster, yet safely. Mm-hmm. And I think that becomes really important uh, as we look into this new era and figure out how do we move faster. Yeah. And most importantly of all, Data ops requires automation to bring it full circle. It requires that leveraging of metadata because you can't move fast enough manually. You can only move fast enough with high levels of automation. And that's what yeah. DevOps brought into software development was high levels of automation mm-hmm. into the process of how you build. Same thing for data ops and, and data. Oh. Well, I feel like if people want to hear more on this topic, then maybe what they should do is check out the summit that's happening April 13th and 14th, possibly. I mean, they can also contact us anytime or, you know, just reach out to us. We're always happy to talk about data automation, but also the summit, just maybe. Yeah, I think think this is a good idea. I like what you did there. 
Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. And I promise the summit, you won't have to listen to me pontificate, just other people who are way smarter about this topic than I am. So that's a beautiful thing about the summit as well. So Sean, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank always, you. always enjoy these chats. Me too. Honestly, what I really do appreciate about so many of these topics is exactly how applicable they are to folks outside of traditional data engineering, like, well, me, (laughs) which is part of the reason why I, in particular, am so stoked for the Data Automation Summit, which is a free virtual event on April 13th and 14th, where you'll get to hear conversations, case studies, Q&As, and more from real-world practitioners that are implementing data automation strategies in their data stacks. Head on over to ascend.io to learn more. Welcome to the new era of data engineering.